And we are picking up here at uh, part two of the collab that uh, I'm doing here with Wealthion and George Gammon and his channels over there at YouTube. He's got uh, youtube.com slash George Gammon and youtube.com slash Rebel Capitalist. It's been a great discussion so far. George, thanks for coming on over to my channel. Well, I appreciate you having me. I know we left it right kind of, we gave him a cliffhanger. You gave him a great right cliffhanger. at the end. I wanted to go into that uh, kind of theory I have on the Fed put. So should I just dive right in there? Yeah, real quickly, let me just set the stage for anyone that's watching without having watched part one yet. And folks, yeah, you should yeah. definitely go watch part one after this if you, if you haven't seen it yet. And we'll put the links up that we'll tell you how to do that at the end of this video. Um, I just want to show a, a tweet that I put out yesterday that's kind of gone viral and it captures the spirit of the question that uh, that, that George is about to address here. Okay. Um, uh, I just sort of summarized the the trap you know that the fed is in right now uh, in this tweet where i said there's a politically unwinnable decision at hand right now where the fed can either one taper and then raise rates and make folk makes folks poor by cratering markets home prices and the economy mm -hmm. or two it can let inflation run hot and make folks poor by an increasing cost of living and currency debasement and I think yeah. that is the trap that they're in right now. And George and I spent a lot of time over in the part one part of this collab, uh, kind of explaining, you know, how we got to this point and, and what the Fed may or may not be able to do from here. The cliffhanger that we ended on was George said it, he sort of has a theory um, about whether the Fed put uh, is still something that can be relied on or not. So, George, why don't we just dive right into that? Yeah, because we were trying to think through, OK, if the market starts to crash, because of the tapering or if they get to actual raising rates. And we still have the CPI print at 7% and going up. Then, uh, you know, do they have price controls? You know, the government come up with price controls. But let's just say that they choose to support the market in that environment. They say, okay, so sorry, sorry, sorry. You know, we'll go back to, we'll have an emergency meeting like we did in March of 2020. And uh, we'll drop rates back down to zero. And we'll go back to $120 billion a month in QE because they got to do anything they can to prop up the market. If we have a downturn, a disorderly downturn, let's say 20 or 30%. But then what if the market rejects that and continues to go down? And the proof for this is, I think, March of 2020, going back there again. And if you recall, the Fed was supposed to meet on a Wednesday. And they did that emergency meeting on Sunday. They dropped rates down to zero and they said, okay, we're going to do basically QE infinity. In addition to that, we're going to commit to, we're not going to do this much in transactions, but we're going to commit to a maximum of $1 trillion a day in repo. And that was on a Sunday. Then if you remember the very next Monday, the market opens up. And I don't know what it did intraday, but it ended the day down over a thousand points. It might have even been down more than uh, 1,500 points. So, and it didn't get better. So, in my mind, this was kind of like the market saying, okay, the Fed put has expired. We're done. You can do all the QE you want. You can do all of your fancy interest rates. We don't care. Do operation twist. It doesn't matter anymore. We're going to continue to go down. So what did make the market go back up, at least from a, a timing standpoint? 
whether it was correlation, causation, who knows. When the market started to go back up is when they came out with the CARES Act. When the government announced that they were going to do whatever it was, let's say four or $5 trillion of stimulus spending, which of course is deficit spending. That's when the market rebounded and started to go up to the all-time highs that we have seen lately. So my theory there is that the Fed put has expired and we've transitioned into a government put. So let's look at that through the lens of what we're just talking about. The Fed comes in, they can't raise rates, they choose the, the quantitative easing and whatnot. The market continues to go down. And then the government has to come in and say, okay, 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 we'll do another stimulus. We'll do a $5 trillion, $6 trillion stimulus. But remember, we've got high inflation. So the, then the people say, no, 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 you can't do that stimulus because I don't want my grocery bill to double like it did during 2020. So then I think that increases the probability of what we were talking about earlier, where the government comes in with 1970s style price control. So basically, they're, they're, stimulating the market by getting out stimmy checks and PPP or UBI or whatever. But then they're trying to really micromanage it by saying, okay, we're going to give you all this money, but we're not going to allow producers to raise the price above a certain level. So then what happens, as, as you know, but for the viewers who don't uh, geek out on economic stuff, <laughs> what would happen is we would have even more or bigger supply shortages then we're already seeing because when you get price controls, you're just going to get less stuff. And so, you know, how does that play out? Maybe I'd, I'd like to get your feedback on that. You know, we're in the 1970s, we had price controls, which led to shortages, but we didn't start from a standpoint of shortages. What happens now when our starting point for price controls, we're seeing shortages to the extent to which we're seeing them today? meaning you go down to your local grocery store and 10 or 20% of the shelves are already barren. Uh, you go to your local car dealership and there's no cars <laughs> or there's very few cars. So you know, how does that play out? I'd like to get your, your thoughts there. Sure. Um, well, I think uh, we can see directly how it plays out because we can just look at Turkey, right? Turkey's kind of going through exactly this right now where their currency is devalued versus the dollar by I think 50% over the past year. Yeah, and have they come Erd out with price controls? Yeah, I think Erdogan's called for price controls. Really? Right? Of course, okay. Anybody that, you know, has lived in Argentina, you know, can tell us exactly what it's like down there because they've lived through several waves of this, right? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I'm really glad you brought this up, uh, you know, the, the fiscal side as well, because that really is, I think, what, what stoked the inflation that we're seeing right now. You know, you talk to guys like Lacey Hunt um, and, and kind of pre- uh, COVID, I mean, even after COVID, you know, Lacey was saying, look, my money's still on deflation. Um, and it was sort of the like, the Fed can print as much as it wants. Um, but if that money is not getting out into the real world, the velocity of money is dropping and it's been dropping like a stone. Um, it doesn't necessarily juice the economy the way that the Fed is hoping that it will. But, but fiscal stimulus is very different, right? You know, that money gets out into the real economy and it has a highly inflationary uh, result. So, you know, to your point, um, if Congress could do that, and you know, right now, uh, I think what's material about 2022 is right now, at least looking at both the Fed and, and at Congress, um, the Fed is is actually turning off the liquidity spigot, 
right? Yeah. I mean, they're saying we're going to zero, right? Um, Congress is fighting to get the next uh, social spending bill done and having lots of trouble, you know, getting the majority that needs to get it passed. Will they? Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. But it's not the environment it was back in 2020, like you said, where you know they were approving multiple trillion deals right and left, right? So we're seeing a tightening of both liquidity spigots right now. And you know, if that continues, then we go back to what I was talking about in part one, which is all of that liquidity has been supporting today's asset prices, and we could see a huge contraction in the market um, just simply by reducing stimulus, let alone even getting to tightening, right? Um, so it's the, the scary thing though there, Adam, is is deflation and asset prices while we have consumer price inflation. Exactly. So your yeah, stock I, portfolio is down by 50%, but your groceries are up by 50%. Right. And 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 I fear, I think that's the most highly probable scenario, scenario that we have coming out of this. Yeah. That's what I do fear most. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to get back to your question there, though, about, um, you know, if the government steps in and, and, and you know, tries to put in price controls and whatnot. While, um, while they're, they're trying to, quote unquote, stimulate the economy by, by uh, uh, stimmy checks and UBI and, and whatever, they're, they're trying to get money, more dollars out in circulation to pop, to prop up the stock market and the economy while at the same time they're trying to keep prices low. Right, right. And, and I, I feel that the, the end result of this is, is very predictable, which is that it's not going to work. And, and we probably will see what you just said, where we'll see continued higher uh, cost of living, but we we may very well see um, depreciation or uh, deflation in asset prices, which is kind of the worst case scenario for me. But, yeah. but I, I do want to underscore that it's complicated, complicated by a couple of factors. Absolutely, price controls will lead to outages uh, the way that you talked about. Um, a lot of the outages that are, you know, we're seeing right now are caused more by supply chain issues um, than just the type of government intervention that you're talking about. Um, so we might see an improvement and then fall back. You know, we we, we yeah, might yeah. solve the supply chain outage issues, but then fall back into the, the government control, uh, managed economy control issues. Um, the other issue here that is um, complicates things, which is... Um, you know, we were talking about uh, in part one, kind of the role of the Fed and whatnot. And what needs to shift is um, the uh, the national perspective on sentiment on the Fed. You know, right now people are souring on the Biden administration and beginning to you know make all this a political headache for him. Um, but people still view the Fed pretty favorably. They don't necessarily understand what the Fed does, but they look at the Fed as kind of the guy who steps in and helps when things like get the bad. adult in the room, ironically, yeah, or, or at least just the, the white knight that comes in and makes it better and maybe even yeah. gives us money, you know, makes it possible for us to get money. Right. So the problem is, is that a, they, 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 they look at the Fed as the savior and not as the culprit, as the, you know, the key cause of what's going on here. So that needs to shift. But also when, you know, the, 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 the populace gets pinched, they ask for more stimulus not realizing that it's the stimulus th itself that is leading to the higher cost of living that's pinching them, right? So you kind of get this vicious cycle where people are demanding more of the problem, not yeah, realizing- The cure for high prices is, is if we just give you money to pay the high prices. 
Yeah, exactly. Which of course it isn't. <laughs> well, that'll solve everything. <laughs> right, right. But 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 to the family and understandably, the family that's having trouble feeding their kids that month or heating their home, they just want money to get that short-term yep. need met, right? So they're thinking much lower on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They're more sort of in the, you know, the animalistic part of the brainstem. Um, so we're going to need to have some sort of national awareness of what's actually causing this problem before I think the right types of reform are taken. And, and sadly, that might mean that things need to get painful enough that people, you know, take the time and the energy to really focus on what's going on here. You know, as a populace, we have completely abdicated economic and financial management of this country to a small group of people, um, many of them who get very, very rich off this system in ways that people just don't, don't understand. Uh, and because we tell ourselves that math is hard and these people are smart. Right. At some point, we as a people are going to need to pull back our agency in this story and get educated enough to know what to specifically demand. Yes. And that brings us back to the where our discussion started. And that's what does the average person do? And kind of my theme throughout the last week on my videos with the Rebel Capitalist channel is, and I, I hate to say this because it, it sounds like I'm being such a defeatist but I want to be a realist at the same time. And I've, I've tried to tell people that I think we're just at a point where all we have are bad options as investors. That's it. So you, so you can't try to figure out what's a quote unquote good investment because there are none. The only thing you have to do is try to figure out what's the least bad investment. And now uh, that said, I think there could be some quote unquote good investments, but you got to get offshore. You got to look at, you know, I, I think uh, Russia's interesting. There's some uh, investment opportunities in Africa that I think are interesting. But if you just uh, if you're just looking at the S and P 500 and and bonds and gold and silver, and I would go so far as even to say Bitcoin, um, th there's going into this environment. There's nothing that's a good investment and not, not even Bitcoin, because if, if someone says, well, everything crashes down, everyone's going to go into Bitcoin, uh, maybe eventually, but not initially, because I think that, that Bitcoin is on the balance sheet of so many of these hedge funds that philosophically don't care about Bitcoin. They just want, want to make money. Uh, but they also, in a downturn, they would need liquidity. And as a student of financial history, you know that when we have a, a big downturn in the stock market, like the GFC, what sells off? Gold. Gold. You, you sells dump anything off. that's retaining its value, right? So everything. anything where there's a bid. So if you got a bid, you're going to sell it because you have to have that liquidity, and that's exactly what we saw after Lehman Brothers. Now, what ends up happening is because of the policies that are enacted by the central planners, then gold rebounds and goes, and that's most likely what we'd see in Bitcoin as well. But it, it's definitely not a, a, a straight, um, you know, from the lower left to the upper right with the price of Bitcoin in that environment because it's, it's heavy duty risk off. And then I'd also point out that, uh, going back to our wonky discussion, that the euro dollar future curve did invert. And uh, I won't go into the, the explanation of, of, you know, what it is, but the bottom line is it's very similar to the, the inversion on the treasury yield curve. And for those of your viewers who uh, might be a little more sophisticated, 
uh, they know that when that yield curve inverts, the treasury yield curve, there's a 90% plus chance that we get a recession in the next, call it year and a half or so. I mean, uh, you just go back to the 1940s, look at a chart and every single time that thing inverts, we get a recession. And it's a similar outcome with the Euro dollar market, but what the Euro dollar future curve tells us is that the global economy is going to have big, big problems. Uh, at the very least, we're gonna see a lot less economic activity globally. And I do think that it's interesting that the Euro dollar future curve started to invert when all of these, or not all, but a lot of these European countries came out with their new round of, let's just call them restrictions, lockdowns, et cetera. Uh, I, I think the Euro dollar, uh, you know, that's smart money. That's pretty much the smartest money in the world. I think they saw that and they're saying, okay, that's definitely gonna be what we're gonna have to deal with for the next, let's say two years globally. And that means less goods and services are going to be produced, less economic activity. And I, oddly enough, uh, to layer this over the top of the rest of our conversation, that means that there's going to be a dollar shortage or at least a, a dollar cash flow shortage outside of the United States, while at the same time inside the United States, there could be an abundance of dollars chasing goods and services. Right. You and, can have the dollar depreciating in purchasing power inside the U.S., but still strengthening versus the rest of the world currencies. Correct. Yeah. For folks that want to try to wrap their brains around what, what George was just talking about there with, with, with the dollar, um, I interviewed uh, Brent Johnson, who um, uh, George just said he was traveling with recently. Uh, he has a theory called the dollar milkshake theory, which really goes into detail in explaining this. It's very important to understand. If you haven't watched the video, I'll put up a link to it right here. Um, but yeah, George, you know, what's concerning about that is um, uh, not only is the inverting curve predicting recession and, you know, it very well could be what uh, could be responsible for it. The trigger could be these, um, you know, tightening labor controls because of the pandemic in these, these countries. Um, we haven't even talked about the pandemic as a wild card. If we get some new, you know, hyper contagious strain that, that that's right. even worse than than what's being touted right now. Um, but but think about this for a second. So you layer on top of that uh, increasing commodity costs, right, which have been happening worldwide right now. So that basically uh, you know, depresses profitability and whatnot, right? So that in itself is is uh, problematic for companies. Um, and then of course, if we actually get the rate hikes that we talked about in part one, um, you know, I don't see how the economy couldn't go into a recession um, with an economy that is this hyper leveraged, this dependent upon basically, you know, practically costless debt. So many companies uh, are at the highest level, highest leverage levels that, that leverage levels they've ever been in history. And of course, when rates go up, their debt service costs go up. So, um, I mean, we could really have a perfect storm of recessionary factors uh, converging here all at one time. So let me, let me just- you, yeah, you mind ahead. if I throw you a, a curveball? Absolutely. I agree with the, the premise of, of, of what you've been saying. I think the Fed raises rates, the, the market goes down, but uh, I think there's an interesting uh, theory that, that Brent was talking to me about the other night when I had dinner with him in San Juan and I, I want your audience to, to kind of we'll, we'll think this through the thought experiment because it kind of offers a, a different view 
And, you know, there are no certainties, there are only probabilities. So I think it would be wise for your audience to take what we're saying, try to figure out the probability of that uh, outcome coming to fruition, and then take what Brent's saying, and then kind of weigh the probabilities there. Um, so what we were talking about is just what happens domestically, right? So interest rates go up, that means stocks most likely go down, PE compresses, um, and then there's this rotation from growth stocks into value. And those growth stocks have been what's in, uh, been really driving uh, the market overall. So then you have this crash in the market, then what does the Fed do? Well, let's just assume that the result or the catalyst was raising rates. Okay. If you're a foreign corporation, let's say in Colombia, you've got a lot of dollar denominated debt. So let's say that you've got to roll over that debt, but now you've got to do it at an interest rate that's even higher. And your dollar cash flows have really gone down because of what's happening in Europe, in Australia, where they're taking this draconian approach to the, uh, we'll call it the cerveza sickness. So this is decrease, and this is what the Euro dollar futures curve is predicting. So we have a decrease in global economic growth. That means a decrease in dollar cash flow, but they still have their dollar loan payment every single month. So then what do they do? Well, they most likely take some of their Colombian pesos that are on their balance sheet to go into the FX market to buy dollars to service their debt until those dollar denominated cash flows go up. Okay. Well, if you're a Colombian investor and you're someone that's like, let's say a Warren Buffett type in Colombia, you see this happening and you're like, wait a minute, this is not good for peso denominated assets. Uh, this means that although they may go up, we're going to get some uh, a big inflation spike here like they saw in the United States uh, because all of these corporations and maybe sovereigns are trading their pesos for dollars to service this dollar-denominated debt because of the lack of dollar cash flow. What do you do in that environment? So I think that the Warren Buffett type might look at that and say, man, I'm just going to take my $100 million worth of Colombian pesos and I'm going to buy the U.S. stock market because uh, you know, I'm, I'm buying a, a dollar-denominated asset, and I think the Fed's going to come in and, and do something. And even if they don't, you know, yes, the stock market might go down, but I think the Colombian peso will go down even further relative to the dollar. So I'll have a little bit of a hedge there, even if the nominal value of the stock that I purchase goes down. And therefore, you could see a lot of capital flowing. If, if the Fed raises rates, you could see a lot of capital flowing from offshore, from the euro dollar system, let's just say, into the United States to buy stocks to do the Fed's bidding for them. What do you think about that? Yeah, uh, so I think it's definitely a potential. <clears throat> um, and actually, I've had that same conversation with, with, with Brent, which I think actually, I think we need to sort of count on some of that happening. Question is, is you know, could it be enough to offset the, you know, just in the U.S. alone uh, right. since the pandemic hit? Uh, I think it's something like over ten trillion in stimulus has been pumped in by both the Fed and uh, the uh, uh, the federal government. Yeah. So, so the main takeaway there, I think, for the viewer is you have to understand that we're dealing with complex issues. It's not black and white, and you have to also understand we're dealing with cross currents that are at play at all times. So it's not whether we're going to have a uh, you know, stock market crash or the stock market boom or whatever. It, it's these forces are at play 
constantly, like these tectonic plates. And we just have to figure out which one has the most power at any given time. And I think that's the, the prudent way to think through this, regardless of what the viewer's conclusion is. Absolutely. And it's funny, you took the words right out of my mouth there with cross currents. So um, as I say often in these videos, um, I think this is one of the most treacherous times in living history to be an investor. And it's certainly one of the hardest times to kind of wrap your brain around and, and feel like you can you know, predict with confidence what's going to happen next. And I, I come back to a point that uh, Jim Rickards made um, at the panel that I, I uh uh, yeah, when we were in New moderated Orleans. in New Orleans when, when you were down there. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and you were very kindly going to pitch in for Jim when we couldn't find him, uh, but he did show up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, his number one advice to people is diversify, right? He said, look, you know, the diversification, especially in this type of environment is your friend. Um, that's what's going to save your bacon if your primary theses turn out not to be true. And of course, you know, uh, history has shown that a diversified portfolio tends to outperform any sort of concentrated portfolio over time. So um, I, I would say um, kind of munch together advice from both Grant Williams and Jim is, is pick your path, right? Uh, there are lots of good arguments out there that deflation may actually win out, you know, um, but there's an increasing number of ones that, that are equally compelling that inflation is going to win out. But kind of try to pick your general path, uh, but then diversify, right? And we were talking a little bit earlier in part one, George, about, okay, you know, we'll, we'll, we've done a good job of scoping the problems, but investors still have the real world problem about what do I do with my money, right? right. And you were kind enough to call me an expert. I, I am not an investing expert per se. Um, I feel like I, if anything, I'm sort of an expert of experts, um, many in the way that you are, where I know a lot of the people out there who are extremely smart on these issues and a big part of Wealthion and your channels is bringing that in front of people. And then a big part of what Wealthion does is then connects people with financial advisors who look through a similar lens and are translating those insights into an actual, actual actionable plan. Right. And given everything that's going on right now, um, I do think that the number one thing to focus on is risk management. It's Agreed. not a time. It's not an environment where you're trying to swing for the fences here, uh, because uh, as you and I talked about, there's so many risks out there, and it's just so murky because of these cross currents. I think you really, at this point in time, you know, capital preservation outweighs reaching for growth. Um, and I'm just going to list a couple of what I consider to be sort of best practices, um, having talked with a, a bunch of smart people. And if you want to add anything to this, George, I think the audience would be really appreciative of that. Um, again, this was taken from Grant's interview last week. The assets that have benefited most up until now uh, are highly likely not to be the ones that are going to benefit going forward. So, you know, expect to see sort of a change in regime in terms of which asset classes are going to be outperforming. Um, you and I spent a lot of time talking about inflation and, uh, uh, you know, from an economic standpoint, at least, you, you gotta you gotta figure out how to protect against it. And you and I were talking about finding um, investments that give a yield, and ideally give an inflation adjusting yield. And that can be income producing real estate, it can be tips, it can be deep value uh, stocks that are priced reasonably that issue dividends. Uh, it even can be T bills. Um, uh, hard assets, obviously, things that have intrinsic value that can't be inflated away. Um, commodity is a huge part of that. And, you know, you mentioned gold and silver, and some people would throw crypto in there as ways to sort of protect against dollar devaluation. I feel much more confident opining about the, the precious metals and the cryptos because I understand them a lot more. And the cryptos, so much speculation has gone into that place. They might be very good um, 
protectors against dollar devaluation, but but maybe only if you get in at a more rational price than they are today. And I don't know what fair value is for those, so I'm not going to tread too much in there. Um, I think too, you need to to have some positioning against a market crash. And we talked about the importance of the optionality of cash, even though it hurts to hold it in an inflationary environment before a market correction happens. Um, hedging is super important uh, in terms of risk management. And most people might be somewhat familiar with the term, but very few people are practiced in actually deploying it. And this is where a, a professional advisor can be super helpful in looking at your portfolio and, and using hedges as insurance, the same way that you put in you know, fire insurance on your house to protect you in the unlikely event that it burns down. And then last in that bucket, volatility. Volatility right now is about the only asset out there right now that is negatively correlated with the markets. Everything else is trading in tandem and uh, volatility can give you some really powerful protection. You don't need a lot of it in your portfolio um, to give you that, that protection. Um, yeah, in fact, I, I actually invested in one of Chris Cole's funds. Okay. And for folks that don't know Chris Cole, he runs Artemis Capital. Yeah, right. that's a long vol fund. Yeah, it's a long volatility fund. Yeah, very very smart guy too, by the way. So that's mostly the rest. The, the list I also talked there about the rotation from growth into value, but you've already talked about that a bit here. Is there anything else that you would add to that list? Yeah, because I think people need to get their uh, their mental state in order, and they need to have like a, a a psychological game plan, and that you know going into a tough year, if we see that. That's the hardest thing to manage. It's not your portfolio, but it's your own emotions. And that's, a that's a phenomenal point. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. The way I do that, what, what keeps me grounded is studying the greats. And the first book that I read that introduced me to the greats was Market Wizards. And so I believe that's a three-part series. The first one came out... Uh, just the original Market Wizards. I think it was the late 80s, early 90s. Um, but that's when I was pretty much first introduced to Jim Rogers as well. It was Jack Schwager, who was the, the author. Uh, he interviewed Jim for the book. And it's just a book of, of interviews. And they're absolutely fantastic, fantastic. And, you know, you talked about a tweet that you sent out earlier. And I, I tweeted something a couple of days ago because I saw this ad on social media that featured um, oh Matt Damon. And it was for crypto.com. And it said, fortune favors the bold or the brave, excuse me, fortune favors the brave. And I said, listen, I've studied the greats. And if you go back and read the market wizards books, you will find that brave was never a common denominator in their investment strategy. What was, was incredible risk management. That's what you find. That it doesn't matter whether you're Jim Rogers and you have a, huge, a very kind of asymmetric long-term approach or you're a Stan Druckenmiller where you do multiple trades every single year and you're more on a two or three month time frame. It didn't matter whether you're an Ed Thorpe and you're, you, know, you got your beginnings in blackjack. It just didn't, whatever in more of a quant guy, it didn't matter what your strategy was, what your personality was. All the guys and gals that were the best in history, they have all had one thing in common, and that is incredible risk management skills and an ability to manage their own emotions. So I think that's key going into 2022. And to start, I think everyone should read those Market Wizards books 
to give them insight on how others that did it very well uh, did it themselves. And hopefully that allows them, uh, the average Joe and Jane that reads the book, to implement those strategies uh, in their, with their own portfolio uh, moving into 2022. All right, super. And George, I know you need to go here in just a minute, um, but we're going to start sort of the rapid fire recommendations for folks here. And recommendation number one is to go read that book. And, yeah. you know, I don't know the derivation or where the, the fortune favors the, the bold or the brave came from, but I do know that Louis Pasteur, and there's the book Market Wizards right there. Who's it by? <laughs> Who's that? it by there at the bottom? Jack Schwager. Jack okay, Schwager, great. Um, but Louis Pasteur, you know, the fellow who invented pasteurization, his famous quote is fortune favors the prepared mind. And that's exactly what you're saying here, George, right? Which is you want to go into this with a game plan, the old to, to plan to fail is that, yeah, to plan to fail, sorry, to fail to plan is to plan to fail. Right, um, right. And so this is why I think working in concert with a professional financial advisor who can take the emotion out of it for you and come up with a plan. And when the emotions begin to get the better of you, can be an impartial counsel to say, hey, George, look, this is why we came up with the plan. Do you really want to change things here or do you want to stick to the logic of what we put together? Can really be grounding. And so for, I know we got a lot of your, your audience that have come over from your channel to watch this part too. Folks, if you actually want to have a conversation with the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses, uh, just go to Wealthion.com and uh, it takes about five seconds to fill out the form there. You can have a free consultation with them. It doesn't cost you anything. There is no commitment to work with them. It's really just a public service they offer for all the reasons that George and I are talking about here. They just want as many people as possible to position prudently in advance of what may be coming to reduce the number of people who find themselves kind of roadkill and what goes on here. Um, all right, George. So, uh, you know, kind of in wrapping up here, um, uh, for your audience, you, know, you and I do very much the same thing here in terms of we spend most of our time talking with experts in this space and trying to make things digestible and understandable to the average person who's trying to build wealth and navigate this really challenging time. So, if you're one of my viewers and this is your first time uh, getting to know George, go over to his channel. He's got two uh, youtube.com slash George Gammon and youtube.com slash rebel capitalist. I'll put links to those in the bottom of this video below, uh, but go over there and subscribe to his channel. And if you're one of George's viewers, and this is your first time here, and you'd like to see the interviews that we do going forward with folks everywhere from Jim Rogers to Grant Williams, to uh, John Hussman, to Stephanie Pomboy, Daniel DiMartino Booth, a lot of the same people that George interviews, uh, just click the subscribe button down there and feel free to start uh, enjoying these videos going forward. So George, any parting advice for folks before you got to run off to your next no, interview? No, I just think it's really exciting that you're doing what you're doing. And uh, I, I think the more people that are out there spreading the message of financial education, uh, but also freedom, liberty, and how important free market capitalism is, the more people that are doing that, the, the better. And uh, so it's just great to see people like you out there doing what you're doing. And I'm very glad to be a part of it. Well, second, hallelujah, brother. And thanks so much for doing this. It's been a really fun experience. I hope it's been an educational one for folks. And George, I really look forward to inviting you back on this program in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it again soon. Thank you.